From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Matthew Hansen, executive editor of the Flatwater Free Press. One of the really, really cool things about being a newspaper reporter or being a journalist is you see the absolute worst of humanity and you also see the absolute best. There is no one answer to, to what human nature is. It is all the things. And and I mean, that truth, that duality is 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 why it's interesting to be in journalism. We talk journalism, polarization, and the aims of the Flatwater Free Press as an independent source of Midwestern reporting. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Matthew Hansen, former columnist for the Omaha World Herald and now executive editor of the Flatwater Free Press, Nebraska's first independent nonprofit newsroom focused on investigations and feature stories that matter. Here's our conversation. You're somebody who uh, I have been aware of for a long time. We've never met, but I've you know, read the World Herald. I grew up in Omaha. So uh, I feel like when I get a professional journalist in here, it's always sort of like, all right, so he's going to see right through all my tricks. <laughs> he knows what's going on. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, so have you, I don't know how much interviewing you do. Uh, I mean, I do a ton. I don't. I don't do a ton of interviewing uh, live or sort of right. Uh, Not like in, published the, in this way. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny to think about how interviewing is so much different for a print reporter. You don't have to hear the you know your terrible questions, <laughs> sort of, sort of yeah, because back to you because you're looking for specific information. Whereas I'm kind of just like, all right, so who are you? What's your deal? Right. Right. Um, so. Were you always into journalism? Like, were you a kid who was into, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Woodward t- and Bernstein and stuff? <laughs> not not those two until later, but um, I was starting my junior year of high school. It was really my, you know, the first thing that I can ever remember that, that I, I really attached to. I was, I was sort of a good student, but kind of, I don't know, aimless. And, and journalism was the first thing that, that gave me uh, kind of a focus, uh, a purpose in life. So I kind of knew by the time I was... Uh, going into college that that's what I wanted to do. So you were on the high school journalism, like you were in the newspaper writing yeah, for it? Red Cloud High School, co-editor. So, so did you, were you born in Red Cloud? You lived there your whole oh, life yeah. up to that point? Yeah, yeah. So sure. what, how much of that is just Willa Cather stuff? Uh, in the high school newspaper? Well, just in, <laughs> not, I imagine none. all Red Cloud all the time <laughs> is just Willa Cather this, yeah, Willa Cather that. It's funny, you know, growing up there, I mean, I, I was certainly attached to it. I mean, I remember things like, you know, famous people would come to the Cather conference to be the keynote speaker and they would stay with my grandparents because there there wasn't enough, you know, hotel rooms in in town. So I remember uh Dick Cavett, you know, who's a famous Nebraskan late night uh talk show host uh printing off stuff on my my dad's computer. <laughs> That's like awesome. in the, you know, in the 80s when not very many people had a printer. I, I mean, I don't know. It's just just weird stuff like that, but you know, myself and, like, I think a lot of other kids in Red Cloud, I didn't really attach to Willa Cather when I was a teenager. You know, it's not yeah. – you, you read My Antony and O Pioneers and you understand that it's important, but it just didn't really matter to me 
very much until I was an adult. And it's great to go back now. We go back for the Cather Conference every year and kind of, I don't know, there's something about being able to read her books and attach it to what you see out the window or as you're taking a hike or whatever. I, that, that's a really meaningful experience uh, to me as a 41-year-old. So, yeah, I, I kind of had a similar experience where I had to read Cather, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if she's clicked for me yet still. So what was the point for you? What do I need to do to appreciate my Antonia more? You know, the, the, as an adult, it was actually her short stories. It was a specific short story called Paul's Case. Okay, um, yeah, that is a, it, it's not a Red Cloud story. It's not a Nebraska story. It's a big city story. Yeah, New York, but, right? Yeah, and it's horribly depressing, by yeah. the way. But it, but it just was the first time when I realized, oh, wow, this— um, woman from the past has a lot of different gears and you know she she can be truly amazing in, in these different ways and so then I started reading a bunch of and I, I reread O Pioneers and, and My Antonia and they're they're wonderful um, as an adult I think I mean O Pioneers has a giant like twist at the end like a cliffhanger uh, ending that that you know somehow I didn't appreciate as a kid but stuff like that happens and you realize that Cather really knew what she was doing what was it about Paul's case I mean was it the the subject matter because it's it's a uh, an aspiring artist right yeah and he's got some kind of uh, mentor figure right kind of well, I, I don't. I do not want to take a quiz on Paul's case because I haven't read it in like a decade now. But no, I, I don't even. It wasn't the plot. It was the idea. Like I was a young adult when I read it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it was this idea of searching, of loneliness, of you know that 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 stuff that you can feel, or at least I felt, uh, much more deeply, kind of college, post college than certainly than I do now, and certainly than I did when I was a teenager, right? right. So, yeah, I think it was that. I think it was the idea that she could speak to me in these different ways. Well, so I do imagine, though, growing up in Red Cloud, that there's sort of this reverence for the written word through Cather, right? I mean, kind of. It's weird. Like, there, there is a, a, a segment of the town that is very much of Cather. I mean, the Willa Cather Foundation is one of the biggest employers in town. It's a very amazing multi-million dollar you know, operation that has transformed the this small town into, you know, I mean, redone entire blocks of Main Street. Um, you know, it, it's great. And th- there's another segment uh, of the town that it, that is kind of dubious uh, of Willa Cather and the, the Cather people as they are as they are sometimes called. So so there's all and it's, it's I mean, this sort of stuff started happening when Willa Cather was alive, right? When she was writing her, her, her most famous books. So it's an age-old kind of duality in Red Cloud. And I know the Cather Foundation is working hard and will continue to work hard to, to, to bridge that divide. Because the point for Red Cloud, one of the points for Red Cloud is this is what distinguishes us as a small town. This is our 24th, 24th, 21st century, maybe 24th century too, um, path forward, um, you know, uh, for economic development, for tourism, this sort of stuff. They're building a, 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 a gorgeous um, hotel on the main street in Red Cloud right now. I mean, the, the sort of stuff that I could not imagine happening in the 90s when I was, when I was growing up there. Um, it's really astounding. It's a blessing, though, that you got Dick Cavett to use your printer <laughs> instead of <laughs> yeah. staying at a cool hotel. And weirdly, uh, I, I had two connections with Dick Cavett. The other one was when I was a college student, uh, a senior, I got assigned this amazing story um, to go profile Dick Cavett for the uh, Lincoln Journal Star. So I went to New York as a 22-year-old, and I hung out with Dick Cavett. He took me backstage of a Broadway show Um uh, that starred Edie Falco. Wow. So I met Edie Falco. They're like talking about the Sopranos. And I mean, I'm just mute. I'm so terrified by this whole situation. I went out to his house in the Hamptons. I mean, it was this ridiculous experience, journalistic experience for uh, a kid. Yeah, I, I love Dick Cavett. Uh, I think I only discovered him through like watching documentaries where they'd show clips of him. But I'm, I'm definitely one of those nerds who will turn on YouTube episodes of old Dick Cavett. So I mean, that, I don't know. That's really cool. It, it, it really was. And he, as you might guess, when you asked Dick Cavett a question, 
he answers for between 30 and 90 minutes. <laughs> so he's a good interview, but, but I mean, I didn't have any ability to steer him when I was that young. So we spent a lot of time together in part because he was just talking for, for a lot of it. But yeah, it was great. And I watched a ton of his old stuff at the Museum of TV and Radio That's awesome, um, when I was there. And, and yeah, just uh, amazing. Like the sort of stuff that you, it's hard to imagine that being on network television. Now. I know, yeah. Did you learn anything from him that you still do? I, I learned a ton from, from reporting and writing that story. It was actually one of the seminal kind of events in my early journalistic life. Like I said before, I didn't have any ability to steer him, and it led, like, we were supposed to have one, I don't know, let's say three-hour interview, and at the end of those three hours, I'd asked, like, two questions, three questions, right? And I was, I thought I was dead. I mean, I, I seriously was so worried, and he graciously agreed to give me more time. I don't think he had anything else going on. He wanted to hang out. But, you know, it, it was this idea. And it was also so I learned how to be a better reporter for, through it. And I also learned how to use kind of that the bad stuff that sometimes happens to your advantage. I mean, the best paragraphs of that story were about um, how Dick Cavett loves to talk and sort of using that stream of consciousness stuff that he was kind of doing to me that during that uh, first reporting day. Um, to my advantage in the story. It was the first time that something like that had clicked to me. Like, this is how you write a feature story. This is how you show the reader who somebody is. Well, because, yeah, I mean, even even though you only talked twice, he probably gave you plenty about himself that was insightful that you could, you know, look at, parse, analyze. Completely. Uh, I mean, he said so, so many interesting things about so many different things during that interview that it, it was really um, just a fertile field that I just had to understand how to plow. So, okay, if we go back to the timeline then, what was it that first off made you want to be part of the high school newspaper in Red Cloud? I don't really remember. I, I, I remember I really li- – I, I had we had this um, English teacher, uh, Carol Kennedy, who I always liked, and she was great, and she was a journalism advisor. And I remember – the first thing I really remember about it is I wrote a – a first-person essay about golf, which is such a stupid thing to say out loud, but that that was like a thing I cared about, a thing I knew something about, and it was, you know, a way to do some kind of creative writing, but in this like new sort of inside these new parameters that I didn't really understand at the time, and and it, it won some dumb award, and it it just made me realize like, oh, this is fun. And I can kind of do this in a way that I couldn't do math or science, you know, like I wasn't going to be a chemist. I knew that, but I didn't know what I was going to be. And so it was just really the first time when I uh, attached to something and, and realized that I was good at it. So journalism then for you, I mean, was it the idea that you wanted to write for a newspaper? Did you know, I mean, or did you want to be an essayist writing a lot more about golf and other things like that? <laughs> no, I know. I should have stuck with that. I actually have a friend who works at golf.com now, and I'm very, very jealous of him. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's um, – I grew up reading the World Herald uh, and the Hastings Tribune, actually. And the World Herald especially to me was – you know, I, I always tell people, like, Omaha and the World Herald to me was to what New York would be to an Omaha kid growing up, right? It was this faraway big place where important things were happening – and so, you know, and I, I loved Husker football. I loved sports. And I also would read the news uh, pages as well. I remember me reading my Kelly columns when I was, you know, uh, 15 or whatever. And, you know, I ended up working alongside him, which was, it, it really was a progression that um, I, I didn't ever think that it was going to happen. But it, it was something that I always sort of, I think, subconsciously wanted to happen from the time I was a teenager. Yeah, so I, I don't know how much of this is true or how much isn't because I didn't live through a lot of it, but I, I picture a lot of the 20th century being this time where journalism could accomplish so much and there were so many people who, I don't know, they, they were kind of like, there were superstar journalists who mm. basically people trusted, right? It wasn't, uh, you didn't have the kind of fractured landscape we have now where like, now if I just ask where do you get your news already, people have 15 assumptions. Maybe it was always some degree of that, right? But it seems like, the ability of journalism in the 20th century uh, really was kind of in a heyday of sorts. Do you, I mean, do you feel that way? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, when you think about the business of journalism, for sure, there was this, you know, you know, people think of this idea of kind of the big J objective journalism, like the behemoths, the CBSs, the, the New York Timeses, 
as this age-old thing, but they really aren't. I mean, they're products of the middle part of the 20th century, and they're, they're financial and, you know, kind of dynastic heyday lasted for a couple decades and started to decline with what you're talking about, the fragmentation of the market, the, you know, obviously the dawn of the internet. Um, but, you know, before that, it is an interesting period in, in journalism history that, that we don't talk about very much. Everybody uh, in every town there, I mean, first of all, in a town the size of Omaha, at one point there's like 15 newspapers, right? And there were newspapers that were all supportive of a different part of the uh, political ideology. They were very tied to political parties at some point in history. So in some way, and not necessarily a good way, <laughs> we, we've returned to what journalism, you know, uh, was in some way in the in the early 20th century, um, and maybe that was inevitable. And maybe what happened in the middle part of the the you know 20th century was the um, kind of happy accident. Um, but I, I mean, I, I certainly hope not. And I, I know that there's ways to move forward in the 21st century that take from both those eras of history, learn something from both, and and move it. Um, for it, I think, in a better way. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Hansen, executive editor of the Flatwater Free Press. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Riverside Chats. So my, my knee-jerk reaction to that is that it's I should feel good about the fact that this is not an unprecedented time of everybody having their own little echo chambers for their hyper-specific you know specific interests and worldview. Yeah, it really isn't. I, I don't know if you should feel good about that or not, but it, but it really is. I, I mean, pe- I, I know why it feels like the first time to, to people, but if you go back and you read the Omaha newspapers or any city's newspapers in the, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, it is as divisive or more divisive um, than the media landscape is now. That's interesting. I mean, I mean, so what what was it that made it so uh, kind of a consensus and so sort of we sort of entered the, the cycle, I guess, of moving toward these big behemoths as opposed to the fragmented one? It, I mean, there's there's various answers for that. They're all fascinating. And, and I mean, I'll give you a couple of opinions. But the, one of the things that happened certainly for, for newspapers is, I mean, there's a consolidation of newspapers inside cities. I mean, they, they tended to go from, you know, 10 to 2 or 1 in a, in a lot of cases. Um, and, and those newspapers became cash cows in a way that I, I don't think people really realize. Like for that f- four or five or six decades, um, pr- the profit margins of American newspapers were, um, you know, uh, I mean, borderline uh, gross. Um, I, I mean, just printing money. And therefore, what you could do, I mean, when you think about the idea that they're cash cows, that leads to the idea in some way that they want to be for everyone, right? They're built to be to to um, sort of no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you get your news from this place. That's That made sense to them as a business model at that point. And, and it also paid for things that make no business sense. I mean, investigative reporting, for example, like think about the idea that you, you know, newspapers paid and still pay their bills primarily through advertising. Most newspapers do. Big advertisers, you know, the the big grocery store chain, the big car dealership, et cetera, et cetera. The idea that those people are funding an investigation into whatever in the city doesn't, you know, they, they're, they're there to sell cars. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it never necessarily made sense, I don't think. I think it just developed in that way in part because newspapers had the excess funds to be able to do things that are very, very important. And they did. And they were so powerful and so important that the car dealer couldn't stop them. You know, um, that that's a, the mayor couldn't stop them. Right. And, and you saw, obviously, similar things happening with broadcast news. But it's, it's you know, everybody brings up Walter Cronkite, right, as the TV example of this. Everyone trusted him, et cetera, et cetera. Well, two things. Walter Cronkite didn't exactly take a lot of, you know, uh, tough stances for most of his career. And when he did on Vietnam, a lot of people were mad at him. You know, this this gauzy view of of this of the the halcyon days of, of media sometimes it ignores kind of the reality of some of those 
situations. Um, I, I I forgot what the question was. I got so lost. I'm, in, I'm just in, I'm long, I'm like I'm like you listening like, to Dick Cavett here. I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> no, I mean I guess it's just like I think you kind of answered it right. That it's money is the main reason why it goes in any direction, right? That's the fundamentally now there's a way to monetize going back to everybody's niches, whereas there was a period where it made sense to try to reach the biggest market you could, right? So when you were trying to decide what kind of journalist you wanted to be then, I mean, how, how did you go about that? Why was it newspaper that you ended up in? I was always a writer. I mean, I, I don't have, if you can't tell a uh, loyal uh, listener, you know, it, it's not, my skill is not in the spoken uh, word. It's not on camera. Um, it, you know, it's just, it was always who I was. Um, and, and so I, there was never a second of doubt for me that that was the part of journalism that I was that I was meant for, but I was going to be a sports writer. I mean, that's what, the way I started college. That's my first internships were in sports writing, and, and um, that actually extended until September 11, 2001, when I went that day. I can't remember if it was that afternoon or the next afternoon. I went to football practice. I was covering football practice for the Daily Nebraska and the University of Nebraska, Lincoln's student news- newspaper. And I went and I wrote a story about a like a cornerback and whether or not he was going to be starting, you know, like how he was improving or whatever. And I saw it in the Daily Nebraska the next day, and I just thought, God, this doesn't matter. You know, it's just that there are so many more things more important to write about than this right now, obviously. And so I kind of made the transition to, to news kind of at that point or within the next year, and I've been in sort of news reporting and then obviously as a columnist since. So how old were you when that when that decision happened? I was 21. So, okay, so you, you weren't maybe established enough that it would have been extremely difficult to make that switch, no, right? No, so. it was the right time of <laughs> life to no, – nobody noticed when I, when I did it, right? Well, that, that's got to be kind of a tough confrontation, though, to think that this thing that's been your passion now seems superfluous and maybe uh, like a waste of time in some ways, right? Yeah, and I don't want to be too hard on it in, in the sense that I – I mean, I love sports to this day, and I, I love sports writing to this day. Some of the best writers in journalism – are and will always be sports writers because sports is this vehicle for, uh, you know, it's just, it it can be a way to tell important stories. Um, uh, One of my favorite writers growing up was this guy named Gary Smith, who was a Sports Illustrated writer. I actually got to meet him a couple years ago. And I mean, he would write stories that were so esoteric, so, you know, kind of about these deeper philosophical stories. you know, life and death, uh, love and hate issues. Um, you know, so was he really a sports writer? Not really. I mean, right. He wasn't writing about what happened in the game. Um, so, so I do love sports and sports writing, but yeah, for me, it just became a thing where I, I, I don't know. I wanted to play on a, uh, on a different canvas and one that, that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger canvas. You can write about anything when you're, when you're writing news or when you're doing profiles or, or features. So when you decided to make that switch, how locked in were you already to politics and news in that sort of non-sports arena? I, I was, I was a pretty big dork from, you know, my teenage years. Like I followed politics. I followed, um, just sort of Nebraska news it more than your average 16, 17, 18 year old. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a hard switch when I when I did that at um, 21. And so, I mean, then it, it's almost like a, a different form, though, right? You have to learn how to write in that the, the subject matter means that the form is going to be a little bit different, right? And maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe yeah, maybe you write the exact same way. I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. You learn a lot of things from sports writing that are that. I mean, I learned a lot of things from sports writing that really helped. I think when I when I made that switch, and and for example, when I was um, a reporter. Uh, and a columnist, um, you know, narrative writing, sort of putting people at a place and a time, you know, letting them see what you're seeing, hear what you're hearing is a thing that a lot of sports writers do well. So I learned that from sports, from the description of a game or what a, somebody was like when they were, I was interviewing them or, you know, them describing a scene in their life and then me describing it in the, in the paper. So yeah, a lot of that stuff I think was an education and very applicable to to whatever kind of of kind of journalistic writing you're going to do. Now, that's obviously different than the who, what, where, when, why kind of you know covering the city council 
Uh, I, one of my f- first duties at the when I was a young reporter at the Lincoln Journal Star was to cover. I, I covered the university, so I covered Board of Regents meetings, and I always was trying to sneak like narrative uh, little bits into my stories. I remember once a guy like you know, like pulled his tie or something like he was, you know, he was because he was frustrated. And I, you know, just some completely ridiculous, like narrative sentence about how he was trying to strangle himself. I mean, I mean you know, just the the sort of stuff that I, but I was practicing, I was practicing for a future in which I would get to kind of bust out of that um, news, newsy uh, form mm-hmm. and, and be able to do different, uh, more exciting things to me. I mean, I guess, yeah, now that, now that you're talking about it, it makes me think that the way that uh, certainly a lot of politics and specifically races are covered now, like political races, it is similar to the kind of way that sports coverage works in a lot of ways, and especially in, as you get into more polarized types of sensational right. media. Yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, criticism of that, and f- for good reason. I mean, the, the idea of who's up, who's down in politics, this is all a game is is a lot different than who's up who's down in the NFL because that actually is a game right and and this is uh our lives and in our country so i don't i, I and i never really did any of that uh, politic like that type of political writing when i tended to to cover politics it tended to be about specific issues and specific um people sp- specific writing about specific politicians so how, how much of like a, a dance was it at the beginning then to reach sort of a broad audience? Because, I mean, do you think that growing up in Red Cloud where you've got both kind of the intellectual readers and the people who aren't into that, did that help you figure out a language that applies to both of them that makes that, you know, that, that both of them will respond to? Yeah, I think so. But not, I mean, I didn't think about it that much, but I, I think that that where I grew up and sort of how I learned to write led me to a style of writing that you know, I, I think Nebraskans can connect to. I mean, that's at least my hope, right? Not all Nebraskans, but but the idea would be, I don't know, I don't want to use the word, but I, I mean, people have used it, it, folksy, right? The idea of of being plain spoken, but at the same time trying to trying to uh, you know weave some some um, type of you know rudimentary poetry. Uh, in there is is always what I've been trying to do, and, and and it's what I tried to tried to do as a as a columnist. And I borrowed quite a bit, actually. I, I did early internships um, at a couple newspapers. One of them was the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and there was a kind of a classic Southern country columnist there named Jay Greeland. And, and he, I, I read all his stuff. He had a couple books. I read all his books, and and it was that, you know, he was connecting with real people. Uh, simple stories. He was he was writing simple stories about real people in a way that other real people could connect to them. So I, I think I, I tried to steal from him. So when did you become a columnist at the World Herald? Uh, 2013. 2013. And how was how was that? I mean, that's got to be really exciting. It was. It was the first year or two was the hardest I've ever worked in actually until now <laughs> with Flatwater Free Press. And it was also just exhilarating. I mean, it's a very similar uh, time period for me as, as this, this current one is for me. Um, you know, I was, I was just, I mean, the idea is, especially at the start is we were going to write three or four columns a week. And I was writing columns in that time span that were like, I don't know, uh, 2,000 word column, you know, I mean, just way too long for yeah. the amount of time that I had. And, and, you know, I was writing about prisoners on death row and, you know, just all sorts of things that you don't have, you know, because the idea is you have two days or a day to to write a thing. And I was doing stuff that, that actually needed five days. Um, but I, I just was so jazzed about the job and I had all these ideas and I wanted to churn out as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> Uh, a couple years of that definitely led to, I think, a pretty, you know, wh- I started to feel burnout in probably 2018 and then left the paper in 2019. Oh, so you just you just burned that candle at both ends until you, I, until you left? That was a part of it. I mean, it's also definitely the, you know, just the business of journalism and newspaper journalism uh, uh, bummed me out yeah. as, as well as it does many um, of my uh, compatriots around the around the country but yeah by 2019 i had decided i was i was leaving and i did 
So before we get to you leaving, I want to talk about just the hardest thing that about being a columnist working at your output seems to me, how do you have enough opinions on everything? Yeah, I didn't ever really have that many opinions. I mean, that's what's funny about it, right? I mean, if I did, they were sort of worked into the the narrative in some way. I mean, I might be trying to lead people one way or another a little bit, but it was more just about telling stories to me. I mean, I wasn't writing columns saying you should vote for this person or you, we, you know, they, they weren't kind of, it wasn't that type of news column ever for me. And, and it's kind of in the World Herald tradition. They, they, I, most of their columnists have been more like what I did, which was, yeah, more um, feature, a, a lot of features on people, on things that were happening, um, just connecting to your city um, in these different ways um, without, yeah, saying, you know, this mayor is bad or this mayor is good or whatever. Well, I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, just the, the fact of what you're interested in and what you think is worth shining a light on and to have so many of those things. I mean, there is, to some degree, there's a reason why you think these stories should be in the paper every day, right? Yeah. So, I mean, to some extent, that's, that is your worldview being shared. Yeah. And that, that seems like it's a lot to try to have in your head, a lot of new things to come across. I mean, how, how did you maintain a pace of knowing where to go, where to, what to look at at all times? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, that's what's funny about it, right? I, 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 it is a lot. And, you know, I think it led, like, I should have paced myself a little bit more. But, but it, um, the ideas were never the problem. I mean, I had tons of ideas at any given point. And what's cool about being at a place like the World Herald is that as you start to do stuff that people recognize as something that they, you know, something that they like or attach to in some way, they start, I mean, amazing stories just kind of started appearing before me in a way that they never had before. And, and so, yeah, the ideas were never the problem. The, actually, the problem was picking which, like prioritizing those ideas and then obviously executing them in the way that you were uh, pleased with, but but yeah, the the ideas just fell like, you know, manna from heaven, and and that was one of the best parts of the job when somebody would call me and just ha- you know they would tell me I, I I mean I could seriously tell stories for five hours uh, about just uh, picking up the phone and hearing an amazing story, knew knowing that there was an amazing amazing story on the other end of that phone call within thirty seconds. I'm talking today with Matthew Hansen about Flatwater Free Press, Nebraska's first independent nonprofit newsroom. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue the conversation after this break. local restaurant let's go we munch yes there is munch and talk about the experience what we got where did we go we're still there two boxes of food in lighthearted banter i just jammed the rest of the mediterranean in my mouth meatball based items in a way that is both zany this is gonna be crazy we might end up throwing up and fun my hands are burning hell yeah every episode features an exclusive song where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, choose. Yeah. It sounds like haha, bro. Check out Munchie Boys it's on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with Matthew Hansen, executive editor of the Flatwater Free Press, Nebraska's first independent nonprofit newsroom focused on investigations and feature stories that matter. Here is the rest of our conversation. 
when you got this job and you kind of found a rhythm with it, even though it sounds overwhelming, I mean, was there a part of you that was like, this is the thing I want to do forever? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In 2013, 2014. I mean, I, I knew that, again, I wasn't the kid that was ever saying, I'm going to be at, you know, the New York Times. I'm going to be at, you know, the Washington Post. I was the kid saying, I want to work at the World Herald when I grow up. I want to be a con- I mean, that's, I never, I don't know if I ever verbalized it, but that was my goal at a certain point in my life. So yeah, when I hit it and it was, it was exhilarating and yeah, it was, it was great. And I don't want to, I mean, it was always great. It was great, you know, down to the last um, couple of columns I wrote. And it was, it was very hard to leave for that reason. It is an amazing job in a lot of ways. So when you did leave, it's, you were part of kind of an exodus of a bunch of people who were leaving around that time, weren't you? Yeah, probably. I mean, it was right around the time of there. There were various buyouts, um, and there, there. I mean, it was it was in that transition from the World Herald being a um, an employee owned newspaper to one that that ended up being owned by a newspaper company. Um, and the World Herald was uh, very, I mean, singular in its in the way that it was owned and run for decades. So, you know, with that transition, there was going to, I mean, there was going to be two things. There was downsizing and there, there has been, as there has been in every newspaper, except for like two in, in, in the United States. Um, but there was also going to be some transition related to people being used to one way uh, of business and, and then trans- transitioning to this other way. Why is it that the newspaper model can't really be profitable these days? Well, I mean, it, it's built on a, a couple things that, um, you know, become difficult, right? I mean, newspapers made tons of money on classified ads for most of the 20th century. Obviously, Craigslist stole that business. Um, you know, newspapers, it, print advertising was the thing. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to, you know, sell your product... Um, in for much of the 20th century, you had to buy a little space uh, in the newspaper. People still do that, obviously, and the newspaper still makes money. Every newspaper still still makes money of it, but that obviously, uh, you know, segmented uh, with the internet. And then this idea, you know, this frustrating idea that that uh, news information content um, should always be free, which is a product of the internet era, right? I mean, everybody used to. You know, in the seventies, you'd like pick up a used newspaper, right? It's not like you, you, you felt bad about that, but, but it, it's, um, you know, people have stopped, uh, wanting to pay, um, in some way for news. And, and by the way, subscriptions were never the way that newspapers kind of made the bulk of their money, but it, but it certainly helps. Um, so, you know, it was th- this triple quadruple whammy, and then you have kind of corporate ownership and, and, kind of the the forces that come from um, fewer and fewer companies own, owning more and more papers and looking for ways to cut costs. So there's just a lot of things that that happened in a in a 20 year span that um, you know changed changed the business. So one of the, I mean one of the things that happened then is there's in some ways a democratization right through the internet of people being able to get their voices out there in various ways. But a lot of people, uh, it, it seems like there's generally kind of a negative way of interpreting what that did for discourse and for, I don't know, our, our general information, uh, our way that we get information, process information, and who's sort of like, who's able to amass following now is completely different. So basically, in the new media landscape, I mean, do you think that it's been generally negative after the decline of these sort of, uh, whether it's newspapers specifically or just having local journalism as sort of like a professional option? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed. The the, I mean, first off, a couple things. I actually think that here, um, more than in a lot of other cities and towns, um, we still benefit from a solid block and tackle journalism that exists inside this market. We are generally going to know if something big happens in with the mayor and the city council, with the school board, with the Nebraska legislature. Um, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's, it's not as if um, that's gone away here. And that's, that's to be, I mean, you know, I don't think people necessarily realize how bad it's gotten in some other places in the country and, in, in, honestly, in some other places in Nebraska where that doesn't exist at all, right? I mean, if you're going to get 
news and information, you go to Facebook and you listen to what your friends or the city councilman says about the city council meeting. And, and again, in smaller places in Nebraska, that's now. Um, the is it? Po- I mean, that's obviously negative. That's a that losing that is is dangerous for a democracy, um, in in a bunch of different ways. The um, now uh, whether the fragmenting and the splintering of media is bad or good is a harder answer for me. I, I think that one of the things that's interesting about it is that um, there there were always fringe kind of ways to get information. The difference now is um, it's so easy to attach to those fringes and fall down any, you know, uh, crazy rabbit hole that that you want to. It, it's not, I mean, people used to print newsletters, right, that, that were the most racist, xenophobic, um, terrible stuff that you can imagine. But the newsletter subscription would be like 500 white dudes, right? That's not, I mean, QAnon doesn't spread in uh, 1977. It can't. It can't like it can now. So the, the, the kind of propellant of the internet and of social media is and can be dangerous, but there's also, you know, it's, it's, it's more nuanced in the sense that there's also so much good that can come from the, that same accelerant. And it kind of comes down to human nature too. I mean, ultimately we're choosing whether or not we, um, you know, want to go one way or the other. Yeah, the new thing that keeps happening on this show is we get to a point where basically I'm like, all right, so do you think do you have an optimistic view of human nature? And people usually say yes, kind of because I have to, because I'm not going to say no. You know, one of the things, one of the really, really cool things about being a newspaper reporter or being a journalist is you see the absolute worst of humanity and you also see the absolute best. There is no one answer to to what human nature is. It is all the things. And, and I mean, you know... It, that kind of truth, that duality, is 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 why it's interesting to be in journalism. I, I would I would reject the kind of either or nature of that question because I definitely think the answer is yes. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Hansen, executive editor of the recently launched Flatwater Free Press. Well, so in your antidote to a lot of these problems, then is the Flatwater Free Press. <laughs> yes, that's the solution to all our problems. <laughs> no, yeah, the the Flatwater Free Press I think does uh, a couple things that are really important. And let me just back up and and, and tell people what the Flatwater right. Free yeah, Press yeah. is. That's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. Um, it, it it's a recently founded by uh, a guy named uh, Matt Wynn, who's a veteran of the World Herald and was last a, a investigations editor at the USA Today. I'm the editor of the Flatwater Free Press, so I run the journalism of it. Um, our first reporters are actually starting Monday, um, but we've been doing we've been publishing pieces for a couple months um, with freelancers, and I've I've written a couple things. And yeah, the the goal and it's nonprofit, right? I mean, a, a, this new way to to fund and kind of support journalism that it has only really existed in the in I mean, it's existed through uh, NPR and. Um, through PBS for a long time, but but in the in the kind of non-governmental way, um, it, it's a twenty-year-old experiment in how to fund you know uh, a different kind of of media organization. So the Flatwater Free Press is Nebraska's first statewide independent news nonprofit, which is a long mouthful that I'm learning how to say correctly. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, basically we're looking to do a couple things. We're looking to identify and fill gaps in in journalism in journalism as we think they exist. That's two ways for us at the start. One, it's investigative journalism. It's the stuff that, and again, newspapers here still do it. TV stations do it. I'm not. This isn't me saying, oh, nobody's doing investigative reporting. That's totally not true. People are doing investigative reporting, but we can add to that with the idea that our reporters aren't, they don't have to do anything else but that. Um, they're going to be focused on projects. They're going to do 20 or 25 stories a year. Um, that's an, a, a, an, a, an amount of time that's kind of unimaginable in some way for your average 
kind of mid um, um, sized uh, newspaper reporter at a mid sized paper at this point. Um, and, and the other thing is that we're, that we're doing, and this is actually really unique because it, it does, there's a bunch of these nonprofits that do investigative journalism. Um, there are none, so far as I know, that do investigative journalism. And our other thing, which is um, kind of stories by Nebraskans for Nebraskans about Nebraskans, stuff that links the state together. One of the things that I traditionally loved so much about the World Herald and other newspapers like it was this idea that, that it went from border to border, truly, right? I mean, it was there were stories about every corner of the state and stories that I cared about as a child of rural Nebraska. Um, so one of the things that we're really working to do is engage freelancers from across the state, both people with, you know, mostly people with journalistic experience, um, and have them tell stories about things that are happening where they are, and then distribute those stories to a statewide audience. Because one of the things that we're doing, and one of the things that we've been really, really effective in doing so far, is taking those stories and getting out, getting them out to media partners. And I mean, people from border to border, media organizations from border to border are using our content, which is amazing to see. And so, I mean, the, the way that it works then is people have the ability to, I mean, can you get like a subscription to it or is it just like a donation or how does it work? Well, you for sure can subscribe. Thanks for teeing this up. You you can uh, subscribe at flatwaterfreepress.org. And when I say you can subscribe, you can subscribe to our free weekly email newsletter was where you can see all our, you know, we'll send you all our, uh, the stuff that we do every week. Um, and the growth of that newsletter, by the way, has been astounding. It has been, we beat our first year expectations in the first month. Wow. We set a new goal. I think we're going to pass that goal um, next month, you know, far, far before December 31st. I mean, it is, people are definitely attaching themselves to this project in a way that is that really um, makes me excited about its future. And you can, and that is again, flatwaterfreepress.org is where you find, I mean, that's our, that's our website and it's where you can sign up for the, the newsletter. And it's also where you can give us money if you want to. Well, people have to, <laughs> I guess part of the problem though, is we said that what moves the, the, the forms of journalism is money at a certain level, right? So if, if this is something that you believe in, that's sort of like independent non-corporate news, that's also local, you, you have to give a little bit, right? I mean, you don't have to, right? Well, like, well, I don't know. No, it's. I mean, part of the interesting thing about this is that we want to be there both for people who don't have a cent to give us or don't want to give us money, and also people that can give us, you know, five or ten dollars a month, and also people that can give us a million dollars, right? And all those things have happened, by the way. Uh, I mean, we're supported uh, at the outset here by a number of foundations, which is great. Um, we're, we're starting to raise money from from kind of bigger individual donors, and pretty soon we're going to start a, a drive for small donors. Um, it, you know, with the idea that monthly, I mean, this sounds very familiar to anyone who's ever listened to public radio. Right? Sure. We're just stealing from public radio. <laughs> no. So, yeah, we definitely need funding in order to be sustainable. But at the outset here, it feels like it's going to be very sustainable. Are there any exciting features or th things related or I don't know, anything you're going to be publishing soon uh, through Flatwater Free Press that you're excited about? We have a story, a story that you have already read by the time this comes <laughs> out, so I can talk about it, um, a, a story uh, about a small town cafe uh, in Newman Grove written by a experienced business reporter uh, who worked at both the Journal Star and the World Herald, Barb Soderlin. Um, and photos taken by her amazing uh, photographer husband, who she met at the Journal Star, and then they worked together at the World Herald with me, Ryan Soderlin. Um, the, the story about the small town cafe that's succeeding in the in 2021, and why it's succeeding, and how it's harnessed social media, and you know, it's this this kind of old fashioned small town cafe meets 21st century social media type story. I mean. It's my perfect kind of Nebraska story, and she told it really well. And so that's a freelancer story, right, that we're producing one of those stories like that every week. I mean, we'll, we'll have investigations coming on a variety of topics in the next couple months. We're going to get into city issues, um, 
uh, and we're going to get into state issues. I don't want to say too much about any of that, uh, in part because I don't know exactly where we're going yet. Um, but yeah, we're, we launched a um, public salary um, database where um, it's, we started with state government. And basically, if you want to see how much money you know, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, spends on salaries, or you want to look how look, look up how much um, their director makes, um, or anyone in, in state government makes, um, you can do that. I, actually, today has been, as so far as I know, our highest day of traffic, beating the first day that we started publishing. And, and that's the sort of thing, that's like watched, government watchdog type stuff, public transparency, stuff it, it we're, we're definitely going to play there too i mean i know that a thing we have coming is a a similar way to allow nebraskans to easy more easily find out how um political campaigns are funded and who funds them i mean that information is public right now but it's on a website that is hard to navigate and and, and really impossible to navigate in in certain ways so you know, we're working on one that hopefully, um, you know, if you want to know who gave to what campaign or where the the candidate is getting their money from, you're going to be able to tell that thanks to the Flatwater Free Press. Okay, so just to plug it one more time, anyone who wants to learn about it, whether they're giving you money or not, where should they go? <laughs> Flatwaterfreepress.org. All right, so now that we're at the end here, uh, using your experience as, a, as an interviewer journalist, how did I do? It was great. I can't. I mean, first of all, one of the marks of a, a great interview is that it it goes by so quickly. You didn't real like. I have no idea we were already done. So, no, it's fantastic. It was a conversation. I love those. Well, thank you so much for being here. I had a great time as well. Thanks. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>